There's an interesting story uh, about the great Indian civil rights activist Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, <clears throat> Gandhi, of course, was the great 20th century icon of nonviolence and ultimately led to India's uh, emancipation from British rule. Um, of course, he was also a very devout Hindu as well. But there's this fascinating story uh, that he tells in his autobiography about a time in which he got really interested in Christianity. There were some teachings of Jesus that fascinated him, but he had some questions. So he goes there to the Christian church in Calcutta in the hopes of having a conversation with the pastor after the services were over. But upon approaching the doors of the church, he is stopped by some of the ushers. And they explain to him very clearly that he was not welcome. Turns out that in India there was at that time what is known as a caste system. Castes are these very rigid social groups that you're sort of born into. At that time, you really never got out of. Nobody really graduates from a lower caste to a higher caste. People oftentimes felt stuck in their occupations and social status. But this particular church in Calcutta had a policy that they said they were not going to allow anyone other than people from a higher caste and white people to be able to attend the church. And since, of course, Gandhi was neither, he was turned away. Well, as you can imagine, I mean, the experience was fairly traumatic for him. And he penned that famous line, you know, I'd be a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. He would go on later in his autobiography to say, if Christians have caste systems too, then I might as well remain a Hindu. Interesting. Now, look, my hope this morning is, is that all of us kind of cringe a little bit when we hear stories like that. But it does bring up a question that I really want us to grapple with this morning, and it's simply this. What is your Christianity about? Do you understand my question? I'm simply asking, what is the point of you becoming a Christian or being a Christian? Because right off the bat, you can see that there's, there's all kinds of answers to that question. You might say, well, I am a Christian so that I can go to heaven when I die. It's not untrue, perfectly valid reason. You might also say, I'm a Christian because that's the family in which I grew up. My whole family were Christians. That's more of a cultural reason than a religious one. But what I want to attempt to do this morning is to try to enhance that definition, if you will, by looking at the story thus far in the book of Acts. We began the whole process with the outbreak of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 and 2. Acts 3 through 7, we saw that the devil was opposing the Spirit's work, both from within and without. In chapter 9, we saw this commissioning of a, of a young, dynamic firebrand who would eventually go on to become the Apostle Paul. But now in Acts 10, we get what is a major breakthrough, a culmination, as it were, of all of the action thus far. And it's the conversion of an entire Gentile household led by a Roman military officer named Cornelius. Now, to our ears, that doesn't sound all that dramatic. What's the big deal? But you need to understand that to a Jewish mind, to a Jewish impression, this was nuts. You and I live in a very hyper-egalitarian society. We, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around what it was like for an ancient Near Eastern person to mix with other races, especially when she began to consider her place in the world. For a Jewish person, you were special. You were God's chosen people. You were in possession of the truth about God and about the world. And those outside of Judaism were, well, they were outside. So what happens to Peter in Acts chapter 10 is this massive assault on the way that a Jewish person would have looked at the world. But for our purposes, I would submit that it is one of the clearest pictures 
of what our Christianity should be about. Because it shows us what God is up to in the world. Yes, it's about the salvation of my soul, but it's also about the commission he gives me on the other side of that. And that commission, I can sum it very briefly, is to break down walls. Walls that it seems like we are incessantly putting up between ourselves and others. And to look at it, we need to see three different conversions in, the, in this particular chapter. We need to look, first of all, at Peter's conversion. We need to see Cornelius' conversion. And then take a couple minutes to figure out our conversion. First of all, Peter's conversion. We didn't have time to read it, but the story opened with an angel appearing to Cornelius, telling him that Peter was coming as an answer to all his many prayers. But in order for that visit to be fruitful, it seems like, Peter has got to be prepared for it. I love this because Peter, even after receiving the Holy Spirit in the dramatic way in which he did in the book of Acts, he's still got some things to learn. Yes, he's doing all this wizardry and amazing powers and insights and whatnot, but even Peter has got to figure out what it means to be Jewish at this point. So he has this really weird vision. If you look in verse 10, it says that he fell into something like a trance and the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now that's a very peculiar and kind of specific way of talking that we need to unpack. What are they talking about? Well, let's start with this whole issue with Jewish people and food. Jewish people by this time had taken these, these Old Testament requirements to stay away from certain foods, and they had taken it in what we would describe as an ungodly direction. Go back to the book of Leviticus, and you'll find there's all kinds of foods, there's all kinds of people, there's all kinds of situations that Jewish people were supposed to stay away from. And scholars have spent, you know, age untold, trying to figure out exactly why certain foods were forbidden, others weren't. For me personally, I've come to the conclusion that those laws were God's way of setting out limits to his people. Because more than likely, those particular foods that they were eating came with some cultural taboos that were usually separated with death and disease. And God said, even in the things that you eat, ancient Israel, I want you to stay away from those things because those, that staying away is going to preach a message to you and to the people around you. You know what it is? I don't tolerate death. And sin is serious enough to bring death. And I'm here to eradicate death. And so therefore, even in the foods they ate, they were supposed to exemplify this. Now that's how it started in the book of Leviticus. But by the time you get to Peter's age, all that had changed. Instead of becoming ways to sort of preach to their own identities, they had actually turned them into what we might call racial boundary markers. In other words, these were the ways in which you knew who was in and who was out. Peter was living with what we might call insiderness. Insiderness is when you try to live your life by shaping everyone else into your image of what the culture ought to be, whether in humanity or success or truth. And God says, look, that is not the kind of church I'm starting. It will not be about that, I promise you. And so Peter falls into this trance in verse 10, and down comes this big sheet from the sky. And you're, it's worth asking the question, what's with the weird sheet? Well, the answer is, I don't know. But the text emphasizes not so much the sheet, but the fact that it was a four-cornered sheet. Now, that's actually some familiar language there, which gives us a clue as to its meaning. Do you realize how often the Bible refers to places on the earth as the four corners of the earth? A couple of examples. Isaiah eleven twelve says, God gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. you got Revelation 7, 1, where John sees these four angels at the 
four corners of the earth, holding back the winds of judgment. You see the point now? The vision Peter is getting here is about a whole lot more than food. What Peter sees represented by the food on the great sheet is the swarming millions of the earthly population. All of them there spread out before Peter in this just disgusting bundle laid out in front of him. And, of course, what he says is, is he rejects him. He stands above them. Peter's condescending to them. And all of a sudden, we get the first hint as to what's coming when the holy messenger arrived to tell Peter to go to Cornelius' house. Because the point is powerful. What God is saying through this sheep vision to Peter and where Peter needs to be converted is he needs to understand that there is no language or culture that is more appropriate as a vehicle for God's truth than any other culture or language. This is huge. Christianity is the singular world religion that does not lock its message inside one cultural reform. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take, for instance, uh, conservative Islam. Islam, if you know conservative Islam, is forbidden to translate the Koran from, uh, from uh, um, Arabic. Why? Well, because everywhere Islam spreads, it has to bring with it Middle Eastern culture, especially in the way they dress, in the food that they eat, in the holidays that they keep. And if you don't have those, you don't have the religion. But see, only Christianity comes along and says, look, there is no one culture that contains all of what God is going to reveal about himself as it's applied. So suddenly you begin to see this message is eventually going to put an end to all racial superiority. Now, look, I'm not saying that Christians have never been racist. Far from it. But don't miss the point that the Holy Spirit is coming to embody Christianity among the uniqueness of world religions. But it's going to do it in a way that no other religion does. Let's see if I can illustrate this. A number of years ago, I read a book by Thomas Cahill that had a fascinating title. It was called How the Irish Saved Civilization. <laughs> Cahill's premise was simply that as Rome was crumbling somewhere around the 5th century A.D., there was a collection of very faithful monks who were very quietly, totally under the radar, saving all of these manuscripts, all of these Bible translations, all of this, this academic learning. And their patron saint in Ireland was none other than St. Patrick. St. Patrick, who was responsible, for, humanly speaking, for bringing the gospel to Ireland in the 400s. Now look, what you've got to realize, though, is Ireland at that time was a highly pagan, brutal culture, full of, full of druids and, and tree spirits and whatnot. But what made St. Patrick's ministry in Ireland unique was that he did not go to Ireland to turn Ireland into Rome. Instead, he began to take the culture, cultural forms that were already embedded in the culture and he recast them around the gospel. So he would come along and he'd say, hey, hey, these tree spirits that you're worshiping, actually, they're one spirit, the spirit of God who unites all things and is Lord over all creation. In other words, he left behind all of the Roman political arguments. He left behind all of the cultural controversies of Rome. And instead, he embodied Christianity in this very distinctive Irish way. Yet at not one point did he compromise the basic message of the gospel. That was the magic. Now look, why am I going into this? Well, because we live at a time when American Christians are pretty panicked 
about what we perceive to be the decline in Western Christianity. Meanwhile, the gospel is being accepted in droves in places like Africa, places like northern India, even places like China. That's where the church is growing the fastest these days. And some scholars speculate that Christianity is migrating to where it always will, among the poor, among those in pain, among those who struggle, among those who suffer injustice. Of course, the more affluent that the West gets, the wealthier we become, the more powerful we become, the less relevant the gospel seems. Makes sense when you think about it. And when did it all start? It started when Peter walks into Cornelius' house and says, I have never done this before. All my life I've had it drilled in my head that I wouldn't eat with a Gentile because you're unclean. I'm only here because of a heavenly messenger. And all of a sudden, as he's talking, God gives the Gentiles their own Pentecost. God had to tell Peter, you aren't living out the implications of the gospel if you think in any way that you are saved by your pedigree or by your race. Not even close. Your cultural superiority means nothing here. So Peter had to be converted, did he not? He had to be changed. But secondly, we also want to notice that Cornelius had a conversion as well. Let's look at the second one here. First of all, who is Cornelius? Look at verse 2. It describes him as a devout man. Some of your translations will say that he is a a God-fearer. What is that? Well, these people were Gentiles. A Gentile just means non-Jew, by the way, who were somewhat interested in Judaism. Sometimes they even attended worship services in the synagogue. They they participated along with the Jewish people to some extent. However, they were reluctant to fully convert. Why? Because that would mean they would have to be circumcised. Figured out on your own why that was a little bit of a challenge for the God-fearers. But simply stated, these were the people that were like the, they were almost the half-hearted wannabes of Jewish life. And yet, this passage shows that God had been working on Cornelius through the doctrine of what we call common grace. He was giving impressions, and Cornelius was, this, was someone who had learned to be kind to the poor. God had revealed that to him. He had learned to pray, longing. Cornelius is what you and I would have called a seeker. You know, he's somebody who's, who's in whom God is working, but he hasn't quite put all the pieces together yet. But the Spirit is on its way. He's about to unleash a radical message on him, and you see it right out of the gate. <clears throat> and I think it's very funny what the, what, the angel, what the angel does not come to Cornelius and say. The angel does not go to Cornelius and be like, hey, Cornelius, look, we've been up in heaven and we've been taking a poll. And like, dude, you are on, you're at the top of the list of all the humans out there. So we're down here, just do a little light pruning around your life and you'll be cool on the other side of it. No, the angel comes along and says, Cornelius, there's a lot of good things that you've done. None of it counts. You have to be converted also. Even in the midst of all of the good things you've done, even you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now look, here's what you ought to be thinking of. You ought to be thinking of John chapter 3. Remember the story of Jesus when he meets with Nicodemus? There's this great moment where Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a professional religious person, shows up to Jesus because he kind of wants to do some little back-channeled business with Jesus, kind of a little power brokering doing. Well, Jesus looks and doesn't give Nicodemus any sort of room. He looks and he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You must be born again. You, a professional religious person, none of it counts. You have to be born again as well. So already in Acts chapter 10, we see that the gospel is coming along to be about something other than the good deeds you think that you're doing in order to get in. I love this because Cornelius is having to learn that salvation 
really fundamentally comes down to your sense of relationship you have with your good deeds. Really, what am I doing? How do I look at myself? How do I understand how this is? And the angel comes along to say, whatever it is, it ain't going to be based on what you've done because it's all tainted in sin. And so Peter preaches this sermon. It's wonderful, verses 34 through 43. You can, you, can un, you can unpack it this way by saying it's a summary of the gospel. He says, first of all, Jesus lived this perfect life. He died at the hands of people that he came to help. But he was raised again by God to show that he had the power to free people from the death of sin. Finally, he says that now we're announcing forgiveness of sins, quote, through the name. Remember how we talked about that last week? Cornelius became a Christian through his name, which means through Jesus' mission, through what Jesus came to accomplish on the cross. And, of course, you see this massive result. The whole house starts speaking in languages that they didn't grow up learning. What's the point? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, it's the same thing that happened at Pentecost to the Jewish people many chapters before in Acts chapter 2. The reason why I think God says he had to match those two is because without it, the Jews wouldn't have believed it. The cultural incrustations were so thick that unless there had been a miracle, look at verse 45, it says the Jews were amazed. What? They get to come in the kingdom too? So without something happening powerful like the miracle, they would always have wondered. It would have been a greater controversy than we know it absolutely was throughout the rest of the New Testament. The second thing, though, is that speaking in tongues is another reminder of Peter's sheet vision. It's that Cornelius is suddenly hearing that salvation is not going to be limited to one cultural expression. It's a totally new thing that transcends but also transforms each culture, filling it full of unity and yet full of diversity in a way that only the faith can. Okay, so like we did last week, let's ask this question before we move on. Does this describe you? Does it describe us as a church? Has the Spirit grabbed you? Because you'll know when it does, because you'll start to act like Cornelius acted and like Cornelius' house acted. You know what they did? Look at verse 46. It says that while they were there, they began to extol God. What does that mean? Well, it may not mean much to you, but it's actually very profound because the Bible describes human beings as worshiping creatures. You are there giving ultimate value to something. Worship is what you cherish. It's what you adore. Your spiritual and emotional oxygen that you think without which you would suffocate is, your, is where your faith is, regardless of what religion you profess. So true conversion, we find, only happens when I begin to extol God. That is, when what, if what I worship is what controls me, I don't really change until what my worshiping changes. I'm sure many of us have tried for years to change through, through willpower, but it's not transformational, is it? What we need is conversion. We need a change in the area of our delights and our passions and our allegiances. That's different. A number of years ago, when I was in college, I helped out with the youth ministry at my church. And we had a young man who joined our group that all of his friends were shocked were there because he apparently was someone that no one who ever thought would come to church. Uh, he was so popular and so wild. But he came to church because he said, hey, I want to get involved, and, I, and I've changed my life. But the problems started very early on in his time there because we found out he always needed to be in charge. Uh, he bossed people around. Uh, he was moody. And pretty soon he found out that we really weren't going to allow him to lead anything until he had gotten over some of the attitude. 
which apparently was too much for him, which let, mean, meant that he left the youth group. Now, what happened there? Well, when this man sort of decided to come into his religious phase, it was just that. It was a religious phase. It wasn't ultimately about God. In other words, he changed the forms, but it was still about his popularity, his lust for being the center of attention. What did he miss? He had not learned to extol God. He wasn't converted. In other words, it is possible to do all kinds of religious things and yet never confront, confront the center of your life, that place where you worship, where you praise, or where you extol. Look, before we move on, I think that's a, that's a, a question to ask very soberly. <laughs> Am I a Christian if I have not learned how to have God thrill me? Because Acts chapter 10's answer is no, I have not. Until the message of the gospel has come home to me and caused me to find my ultimate joy only really truly in him, all of the other joys in life that I take delight in, they're just pointers to him. Has that happened to you? Does that describe you? Brings me, obviously, to my final point, and that is our conversion. Here's the question. I mean, it may be that some of us are in need of a conversion like Peter's. Look, Peter, we can say, just like Peter, we, we've been Christians maybe for years, but we're still hanging on to these cultural forms as if they're part and parcel to the gospel when they are not. And so oftentimes you see these not-so-subtle undercurrents of racism, especially in the Christian South, that I think should immediately raise up as questions for us. How often have I refused to listen to competing viewpoints, and even escalated those viewpoints up to the level of being the truth when it's just your culture. It's just your approach and not allowed the actual words of Scripture to speak into that. Again, we're in the South, so the racism thing is, 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 is an obvious thing. And I've been, I've been asked amazing questions over the years. I, I, was, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a, a young man years ago who said, Les, he said, do you think that African Americans are a cursed race? I said, I, I beg your pardon? He said, yeah. He said, I, I heard someone tell me that like, you know, Africans are descendants of the race of Ham, the cursed son of Noah. Now look, mind you, those kinds of questions have zero factual base in the Bible or in reality, but they were asked by someone sometime. And the gospel ought to immediately jump in and dismiss those kinds of absurdities out of hand, 100%. But what I'm more concerned about when it comes to us embracing Peter's conversion are the more subtle versions of racism that we don't ever think about. I mean, really, does, does Oxford, Mississippi have a caste system? Uh, does, does Mississippi in general? Who are the in and who are the out in my fellowship? What kind of groups of people have I written off as hopeless? What kind of clothing will I silently judge when people enter worship? What kind of socioeconomic class will I allow myself to have lunch with? This is the question that the gospel is pushing us to consider. It's what my Christianity is about. And if we're going to come and experience this conversion of life that Peter went through, where he had to see the world in a different way, we've got to begin to start asking the questions. Questions, questioning, is this really in the Bible? Or is this just some silly thing that we picked up along that I'm defensive about, but I'm labeling as if it's the truth? It's just the questions. 
Pastor Daryl Davis is an African-American who has a really strange method for interacting with KKK members in his community. I was reading an article about this guy. He says, my, my, my method is I become friends with them. He tells stories about saying, I can, direct, I can preach directly against racism from the Bible. He says, but I prefer to just start asking really good questions. He recounts a story of talking with a KKK member and saying, he looked at him and he said, let me ask you a question. You guys burn crosses. What's up with that? Like, that strikes me as sacrilegious. What's the deal? And he said the guy admitted to him, he said, yeah, it's to intimidate people. But, you know, for a lot of times at our rallies, it's there as a light to sort of give God, you know, to, to, to sort of light the way for God to return on Jesus' second coming. <laughs> and Davis looks at him and says, that's really weird. My God is the one who lights the way for me, not the other way around. And he said his reply actually completely broke the man because suddenly the man realized that all of his racism was simply a way of trying to control God, not bending his knee to God's plan for humanity and where he was taking humanity. See, what happened? It was just a simple question. It was a way of questioning what the Bible actually taught. Is that really there? Have you, have you challenged your assumptions? Because when all of a sudden my assumptions are leading me to more and more homogenous types of people groups, <laughs> I've missed something about the motion of the gospel. Look, Revelation 7, 9, the apostle John looks out and he sees this heavenly vision. Listen to how he describes it. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, ready, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing there before the throne and before the Lamb. Hey, don't miss this. The motion of history, if God is in charge at all, is heading to a multiracial, multicultural, glorious diversity and unity of the people of God as they stand before the throne. And I am either participating in that or I am working against it. My question remains, what is your Christianity about? Because if it's not about us bringing down these walls that we make up, then maybe I've got some really hard, serious questions to ask. It's Peter's conversion. What about Cornelius' conversion? I can do this quite briefly. It strikes me that for Cornelius, what he had to recognize was his relationship to his good deeds. Because the funny thing about your good deeds is, is they, can, they can create tyranny, can they not? Your good deeds are the things you do look at and say, that makes me me, that makes me cool, that makes me great, that makes me a well-together, put-together person, that makes us a happy family. But you know what? It's never easy to maintain, is it? Your good deeds are a tyranny over you. And what they do is they curse you instead of blessing you. That's what Christianity has always understood. And what that means is, is we're never going to find relief from that until someone comes along and goes, hey, <laughs> I love you. Those good deeds are just as gross as your bad deeds. And we're like, oh, that's terrible. What do I do? What do I do? And all of a sudden, what moves in? It's the grace we've been talking about. We've been singing about all morning long because it's Reformation Sunday. Grace moves in. Suddenly grace comes along and says, actually, it's not on the basis of any of your deeds. It's not on the basis of any of that. None of it is, It's based purely on God's, Jesus' work for you on the cross. That's the foundation of it all. And because that's the case, we now have a reason not to be tyrannized. We now don't have to have it lording over us. It's not so fragile now, is it? It doesn't come and go with my behavior or with my circumstances or with my failures or my successes. And what it does is it gives us a chance to, wherever this, to extol. 
This is the funny thing about the gospel. You actually are wondering, what do I do? How do I process that? How do I get through that? And the answer is, you know what? You just begin to praise. And here's what's crazy. You could do that right now. <laughs> We're about to sing right here. So let's ask ourselves about the conversion process as we sing together. You can consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us then the grace to be able to see with new eyes the eyes that you wanted for Peter and Cornelius to have of all the glorious beauty of the diversity you've made us to be and how you are unpacking and giving us new insight into the finality of the absolutely infallible word in all these cultures that your gospel moves through. Father, forgive us where we become complacent in the West on those kinds of questions. Give us the eyesight of, of what your spirit does and how you move and what you're doing and thrill us for it. Because, Father, when we're thrilled, we'll open our mouths and we will sing to you, which we will begin right now. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.